you really have to be proactive to save money in taxes, not reactive. Just be super intentional about if I'm going to do something, I want it to be well worth my time. It's really a win-win for everybody. Listen, too many of us spend most of our waking hours working hard for our money and have little time left to figure out how to make our money work hard for us. We default to handing our savings off to advisors who make their livings off our assets while we wait until 65 to enjoy any of the benefits. The problem is we need a quick way to gain the knowledge to take back the reins on managing our money while avoiding the misleading media or just straight bad advice. My goal is to give you all my knowledge, full-time research, and connections in a distilled version so we all can make our money work harder for us. This show focuses on ways you can take back control and intelligently invest outside the stock market to benefit your life today as well as into retirement. I'm Brian O'Neill, and welcome to the Harder Working Money Podcast. Okay, welcome back, everyone. So we are in Punta de Mita, Mexico for a week with Sumrock Multifamily Mastermind, which is a group of 100 to 150 people probably at this event that are specifically focused on multifamily investing. Most people are operators and GPs and the people that actually run the deals and make sure that these things are not profitable here. So we decided to drag the podcast gear down here and just go straight to the source and interview some of these folks that are in different stages of this journey. So for the next week, we are going to be doing Mike's and Margaritas in Punta de Mita, Mexico. So our guest today is a cool dude. He's been a lawyer for a number of years. He got the taste of investing in real estate and is now taking the plunge to go deeper and be a full-time syndicator. Introduced you here, Gib Irons. Thanks for coming, man. Hey, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Real happy to be here with you. So I got to ask you one thing. We talked about this earlier. It has to do with your Facebook profile, Offshore Fisherman. I'm like, is this dude, was he on like greatest catch or something? Because <laughs> folks, if you can't see him since we're audio only, Gib doesn't look like your typical lawyer. He's got this kind of this full beard. He definitely looks like he'd be working on a fishing boat at some point in his previous career. Um, so what's that all about? Did you used to be an offshore fisherman or that's like a hobby? Yeah. So Brian, I, I love offshore fishing. It's a hobby. I started offshore fishing probably about five or six years ago, and I just absolutely love it. I'm from Eastern North Carolina, so I live about about an hour and a half from the beach, and a lot of my friends have big sport fishers, but I fish on a 26-foot regulator, and I do a lot of dolphin, wahoo, and tuna fishing, so it's something that's a hobby for me. Now, I do have a commercial fishing license, and I do sell my catch no quite way. often. Yep, yep, and... Uh, What's the big fish that you catch? Like, how big are these fish? So... We really target Wahoo more than anything else. The biggest Wahoo that we've caught is about 75 pounds. We caught a 75-pound Wahoo, and it literally is about six foot long. Wow. And they've got a lot of girth on them. I mean, these are very muscular fish. They're some of the fastest fish in the ocean. So I don't know exactly how quickly they can travel underwater, but it's it's like 60 miles, 60 to 80 miles per hour, something like this. Wow. Very fast fish. It's a great eating fish. We have a blue marlin tournament near me called the Big Rock Blue Marlin Tournament. And it is, I think it's the second biggest blue marlin tournament in on the East Coast. And I'll actually be fishing in the tournament this year. The tournament is in June. That's cool. Uh, yes, June 12th through the 18th. So is that the boats? You see this, the giant fishing rods out the back that look like just super thick? It is. Yeah, the marlin rods are 
big, heavy-duty rods and reels. And from eastern North Carolina, we're about 40 miles from the Gulf Stream at the closest point. So we're going at least 40 miles offshore just to get to the Gulf Stream. And with the blue marlin fishing, you might have to go 50, 60 miles offshore. So you're a long way. Long a 23-foot boat, 24-foot boat. Yeah, I have a 26-foot regulator. And I run as far as 60 miles offshore in a 26-foot boat, center console. That's like uh, like Dexter's boat, sort of. Have you seen the show <laughs> Dexter? Is that what it looks like? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot like that. It's, uh, regulators are made in North Carolina, and they're real heavy boats, so they handle the chop pretty well. But yeah, it's a center console like the boat on Dexter. It's really not a very big boat for going that far offshore. And a lot of people would say that you don't want to go offshore in anything less than like 50 feet, but it is safe. We just have to pick our days and be real careful about when we go offshore. You know, what are the conditions going to be like, not just during the time that we're out there, but what are the conditions over the next 24 hours, just because you don't want to get stuck out there and have some sort of a weather event. Yeah. You're, you have a mechanical issue and now the storm's right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, we we also have the bluefin tuna that come through our coast. So if you watch like a uh, Wicked Tuna, the TV show, a lot of that is filmed in eastern North Carolina. So I mean, I live in the area where they have those tuna that they catch that can be you know five hundred to a thousand pound tuna. I've never actually caught one myself, but I've fished for them on several occasions and a lot of my buddies have caught them. You know, the season actually just ended for the East Coast season. Just what the, the closure was just announced. How do you get them in the boat? Like how do you get a thousand pound tuna in a in a boat? <laughs> it, it's a, it's an interesting process. So what they do a lot of times they use like a pulley system and um we call it a block and tackle, but it's essentially just a, a fancy name for a pulley system. And for every pulley that you've got going, you know, it reduces the weight of the fish by a certain percentage. So let's say that like for every pulley, it's a 20% reduction in the weight. So if you got, you know, three rig pulley system, you're going to be able to reduce the weight of the fish by 60%. So you get a couple of strong guys on the boat and you'll, you're able to do it. It's not always the most graceful thing. Yeah. Um, but it's doable. When you're not lawyering and when you're not tuna fishing, you decided to start investing in condos. What got you started in condos? I assume you're making some good money. You're trying to figure out what to do with it. What was the cue? Was it income? Was it tax reasons? So Brian, I've been a practicing attorney for 17 years and I've been doing trial work and I've done a lot of divorces over my career and I've owned my own firm for 15 of those 17 years that I've been practicing. And so, yeah, I got to a point where, you know, I was in that, you know, 250 to $500,000 range in terms of my annual income. And I was just getting beat down with taxes. But to be honest with you, really, I started thinking of real estate investing as a way to build wealth, you know, to be able to eventually pay off the mortgages on the properties and have cash flow coming in every month. And so originally I got into it to build wealth and to have a retirement plan that was a little bit more diversified, you know, than just your typical mutual funds, you know, stocks, bonds, and things of that nature. But I quickly realized the tax advantages of it. And I think that's what's really catapulted me to the next level of real estate investing. But initially I came into it just thinking, I want to build wealth 
being an attorney is great, but I knew I was trading time for money. You know, being an attorney is your quintessential job where you literally trade time for money. I mean, quite literally, when I first started practicing law, I think my hourly rate was like $200 an hour and it went up to, you know, 250 and then 300 and then 350 and and now I'm billing at $400 an hour, but I'm still I knew that there's only so many hours in the day. In a typical year, it's not uncommon for me to bill 1500 hours in a year and you do the math and you think about okay I want to back into a certain amount of income let's say that I want to make whatever amount of money it is I want to back into that amount how many hours do I have to build to hit that number and I quickly realized that there's just not enough hours in the day and I didn't want to have to otherwise you're building a firm with associates and trying to get a percentage of their income their billable hours and it's like which road do you want to go down basically got it okay Exactly. Exactly. Going forward, do you think you'll continue to put money in in stocks and bonds and mutual funds? Or is your mindset sort of changed of you you did that, you have it, you'll probably leave it there? What's your thought? Or you'll still say putting money in both spots? And that's a great question. To answer the question, honestly, I don't know. Over the past 15 years, pretty early on in my law career, I started a 401k for the company. And it was actually just this year in 2023, I terminated the 401k plan and I actually withdrew all of my personal retirement funds. Did you go self-directed or you just pulled it and paid the penalty so it's now available? So I was going to do the self-directed route and I hooked up with a company that offered the self-directed 401k and we initiated that process. And then after initiating that process, I decided that Basically, right now, because my wife is a real estate professional, I am able to take so many losses from my real estate activities. So my wife manages all 14 of our condos, and we have invested so heavily in real estate and been able to capture so much bonus depreciation over the last few years. You know, last year in 2022, it was 100% bonus depreciation. We invested about a million dollars in multifamily real estate last year. And so we, we have so much depreciation that literally we've almost completely eliminated our tax. And so what I did was I just took the, I just, to answer your question, I took the money. I'm going to get a 1099 from the retirement company, but I expect that my real estate activities will probably more than offset that. So I'm not, I am going to pay the 10% penalty, but I'm not expecting to pay a whole lot of tax. It's so funny because like that is exactly where I'm at right now. I'm like one step behind you. I had a 401k for my company. I had a financial advisor. I don't have financial advisor anymore that's like, oh, you have to do a 401k. So we set up the whole 401k, which is a total pain in the butt to administer. So we did the 401k. and I maxed it out every year and I've since sold that company. So now it's, what do I do with it? So it's in that 401k. Do I roll it to an IRA? I was definitely going to, I was thinking, okay, so self-directed, just like you were talking about. And the same thing came up. It's sort of like, I can't get any depreciation through that, basically. Exactly. If it's in an IRA or if it's in a self-directed, you know, self-directed IRA, it has to be cash, basically. And previous years, it's like, man, the 10%, and then I'm living in California, and I'm in a high tax bracket, like, there's going to be 35, 45% of this money gone by the time I pull it out. But now, if we can, this year, we're going to be doing the same thing as you, where one person, it's going to be me, actually, since I don't have a company anymore, I can make myself a real estate professional. 
and we're going to do real estate professional status. And then we're gonna, we have a bunch of bonus appreciation that's come through just like you from passive investments that we're going to apply to that hit that you normally take when pulling the 401k money out. So it's so funny, like so many people will tell you that's not the thing to do. And it probably is true. It's not always true. If you're in a really high tax bracket, that's a heck of a hit to take if you can't do real estate professional status. But if you have a down year or a slow year or something kind of lines up and you you can get in a lower tax bracket, it kind of makes sense. Because the more I think about it, do you think that people like us, when we retire, are going to be taxed favorably or unfavorably in the next 25 years? Like the national debt ain't going down. They ain't run, they're not going to be running this country any better, probably worse. And they're going to be looking for piles of money. And I really think they're going to go after IRAs and some of these other 401ks for people that have a lot of money in to them. And even if they don't, the tax rates, I mean, statistics show the tax rates have to go up for us to be able to start paying if this debt keeps growing the way it is. Like, it's going to go up. So it's might as well pull it out now, take the little hit, grow it, and you don't have to pay taxes on it if you do it right with all this depreciation. So that's so interesting that you did the exact same thing. I've literally had that same conversations with people and financial people in the last month. And until I found the right people that really understand real estate and some of these nuances, everyone said, oh, you can't do that. That's crazy. That's crazy. And it isn't if you set it up right. So it's cool that you actually did that because now I, now I feel better. I've got another person that's done it. Um, I think it flies in the face of your traditional advice. You know, traditional wisdom would dictate that you go to school, you get an education, you get a job, you get it, you know, you work for somebody else. Maybe at some point in your life, if you're lucky enough to be able to work for yourself, you open your own business. And you try to generate as much income as you can, and you save as much money as you can for retirement. That's traditional wisdom, right? Everyone tells you. My dad, everyone, their advice they got that they then transferred to us is basically just like max out your retirement, save, 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 invest it smartly, diversify, and in the end, you'll be okay. Most information was fed to them from the people that are selling the products, the stocks and bonds and mutual funds. So it's like, well, of course that, and you know, like most things in capitalism, you kind of go look at the source of who's telling you why to do this and do they have a, do they have a reason why to do it? And there's nothing wrong with stocks and bonds. Like I'm still in them. I probably will still be in them, but I'm not just going to be just plowing money into an IRA that a financial planner takes as 1% from and hope in the end it works out good while I pay just massive taxes. I think that's really what changed my mind a little bit is I had some really good years last few years and I saw these tax bills. And if you're a business owner like me and you, like we write the checks. They don't just come out of our paycheck and kind of it's phantom money. It kind of just floats away and disappears. Like you write these big quarterly checks and you're like, what in the hell is going on here? And the CPA, actually, I didn't have a CPA. I had an enrolled agent that did my taxes. And we always did these tax planning, air quotes. And it was mostly just planning to plan for how much money I owed. There was no strategy. It was just planning for the big, big, big bills that came. So I started doing my own research and talked to more people and like people in this group and realized that, oh, there's a big difference in tax advisors and CPAs. Because I actually even reached out to a few other CPAs. And I got some of the similar information that I we spoke earlier at the pool that you got, and then you ended up learning like I did. It's a very similar story, and then approached your CPA of like, hey, I want to do this, this, and this. What do you think? And I'll let you pick up from the story, but your first CPA uh, told you to go pound sand, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I've had three different CPAs since I became an attorney, and generally the way that it worked was we went through the calendar year, 
And when the calendar year ended, we started getting documents together, produced those documents to the CPA. The CPA went through the documents and prepared a tax return for me. And what I realize now, and I wish I had known then, you know, way back then, was that you really have to be proactive to save money in taxes, not reactive. There's not a lot of things you can do. Once the calendar year is over, it's over. That time has passed. And so I had a conversation with my former CPA who I thought the world of and honestly was an excellent CPA. Like this guy was no slouch. He knew his area of law. He knew how to deal with people that are in business. Um, He had a lot of people that own small business that he handled their tax returns for, and he did a great job. Yeah, very similar to my guy as well. Like, he's nothing wrong with them. They're not unintelligent or untrained. It's just they're focusing on being trained and up-to-date in a narrow window of strategy and tax law, basically. I think it's become more specialized because I went to a, a mastermind conference and I heard a CPA named Mike Pine from Roanoke, Texas speak. And, you know, and I'm not an accountant, so I'm just going to, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you my understanding of, of what he explained. Mike explained that if you're in long-term real estate investing then in order to qualify as a qualified real estate professional, you have to, you know, you can't be in any other occupation. So for example, since I'm an attorney, I cannot be a qualified real estate professional because I'm an attorney. So I knew that I could not qualify as a real estate professional, but my wife who had been a stay-at-home mom caring for our three children, she didn't have any other form of employment. And as long as she has 750 hours, she could qualify. And then he explained that in short-term rental investing, there's something called material participation. And material participation is a little bit different, or at least, you know, my understanding of it is different, that that you have to have 500 hours between the two spouses. Yeah, there's so, an exception for short-term. Yeah. Exactly. It's a different area of the tax code. You know, material participation is a combined 500 hours between the two spouses. So, When I heard Mike Pine explain that, which he did in about, I mean, he spoke for about 30 minutes, but only a couple minutes of his presentation was on that. I remember thinking, that is my $2,000 idea that I'm going to take away from this conference. And I immediately approached him and he explained to me that he could take a look at my tax returns for the past three years and we could do a three-year look back. And I engaged him for that and, and, and we talked and he explained to me that even the 14 condos that I had purchased, I, I began purchasing those condos in August of 2019. And I bought 14 single family condos in 14 months. So by the end of December of 2020, I had acquired 14 condos and I used the Burr method. I purchased them, I renovated them, I refinanced them, and I did it again over and over. So we were constantly doing construction, but my CPA, Mike Pine, said to me, he said, Gib, your prior CPA has expensed some of these items and you can either depreciate them or expense them. And so he offered me the suggestion of going back and amending my return, one of my prior year's returns, so that we could depreciate those purchases. So in 2021, it was a culmination of purchasing those 14 condos in that time period beginning in 2019 and ending in 2020. And then we also purchased a short-term rental property in the Great Smoky Mountains. It's a that place is beautiful. Yeah, gorgeous mountain house, your typical, you know, mountain house on the top of uh, Bluff Mountain. And so 
we had we were able to do 16 cost segregation studies in 2021, and I think we had about $700,000 of bonus depreciation. I had a really good year at the law firm that year and had one of my highest earning years at the law firm, but I had $700,000 of bonus depreciation, and I think it saved me about $250,000 in tax. Wow. And I also, in addition to saving that money, you know, another metric was I think I paid about 5% of my income in taxes that year. So I wasn't able to completely eliminate my tax, but I paid 5% instead of your standard 37% or 40%. That's amazing. Okay. I had to jump in here real quick. I hope you're loving this interview as much as I am. To get all our content and stay up to date, make sure you follow us on social media under Brian underscore O'Neill underscore investor on Facebook and Instagram. And also remember to follow this podcast if you're listening to an audio. And if you're on YouTube watching the video, make sure you subscribe to this channel. Okay, back to the interview. So back to when you learned about some of this, did you go back to your original CPA and be like, hey, I heard about this, can we do this? And what did he say? Because I had a similar conversation from what you told me at the pool. And I'm trying to remember what exactly you said he said. Yeah, so, so we talked about it and I explained to him what I was trying to do and he just did not seem comfortable with that approach. And I explained to him that, you know, this is a well-known area of the tax code. It's my understanding that the government is incentivizing us, you know, as American citizens to go out and, and add, you know, invest in real estate and do these type of incentives are there for a reason. I don't consider it to be a loophole or any kind of a... It's alignment of your investment strategy with the tax code. Exactly. Basically, if the rules are there, it's just you need to you need to thread your business, your idea through it. Exactly. It, it basically the government is incentivizing you to do certain things, and I think it's a lot more patriotic of me to do those things. And so, anyway, my CPA was not comfortable with it. He was a good friend of mine. We had a good conversation about it. I said, "Well, look, you know, this is the the route that I'm going. I'm going to really be moving in this route over the next couple of years. And you know, if you're not comfortable with that, I understand. And so that was the point where I. I switched CPAs and I've been very successful in reducing my tax. You know, for 2022, 2021, I paid 5% of my income in taxes. And in 2022, I expect it to be uh, pretty close to zero, if not zero. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And even from people that you you obviously directly own these condos, you're able to do this. And then your wife is going to be the real estate professional. But even for people that are simply investing passively and they're going to get bonus appreciation basically will flow through to them because of their investment. They're a little more restricted because it only can be used against basically other passive investments. But even if it's their first investment, it will still carry forward. So even maybe you can't use it against anything that first year, when that initial investment comes to fruition in three, four or five years, that loss, that paper loss still carries forward every year. So when you experience a profit, let's say on year five after the investment, you can use that depreciation that you got on year one against it if you had no other sources to use it on. It works out either way. It's good for people that immediately need it if they have other passive investments or if they're a real estate professional, they can claim that status, them or a spouse, they can hit it that year. But it's not wasted. When I first looked into it, I was like, oh, well, I don't have a lot of passive, other passive investments. So what what am I going to use this to wash it with, basically? It's like, well, I can carry it forward. So it'll take a few years, but when I'm not going to basically pay taxes on the profit of this investment, which is nice. 
Yeah, I think that is a huge benefit to a passive investor. And, you know, when I am looking at deals, deals that I might want to get involved in as a general partner, I'm thinking about that for my investors as well. You know, I want to be able to offer deals to my investors that will give them the depreciation tax benefits. I mean, the depreciation is is key. Not only a lot of times the money is made upon disposition of the asset, but but also during the hold period, there's going to be cash flow. Hopefully, if, you know, if you're investing in in cash flowing assets, cash flowing real estate, you want to have that depreciation to offset your cash distributions exactly. that you're receiving, whether that be monthly or quarterly. Okay. So what's your plan now in 2023 and going forward? You got your condos, you're taking the next step to be a sponsor syndicator on large multifamily deals. What's your 2023-24 plan for your investments as well as it sounds like, you know, an additional career <laughs> with that? Yeah. Yeah. So my wife and I are really interested in being general partners on a couple of deals in 2023. I'm not necessarily trying to do I don't have to do 10 deals or, you know, or even five deals. I, I would like to be involved in at least two or three deals as a general partner in 2023. And I think that really, you know, we're learning as passive investors, we're learning what we like about other kinds of deals. And what we're trying to do, I guess, is we want to be able to offer to our you know, friends and family and our investor database, great deals. So right now we're passing on good deals and looking for great deals. And you know how you look at a offering memorandum or you look at an investment summary and you see certain things about a deal that you just love. Like, for example, I'm a key principal in a deal right now that I'm not raising any money for it. You know, I'm not involved in the capital raise at all, but the deal is a beautiful class A property. It's 295 units. It's got 18 triple net lease retail establishments that are that are in the bottom floor. And it's at a fixed interest rate of 3.49%. This property is going to cash flow immediately. It's brand new, too, isn't it? It's brand new. Brand There's new. no CapEx. Like those are the kind of investment opportunities that get me really excited and and honestly, too, like, you know, when you look at the brochures for this particular investment, this is the kind of place that you or I could live at. I mean, it's got a resort style pool. It's just a beautiful property. And so I guess I'm steering towards the nicer properties. I'm not saying that I'm going to do all class A, but I like I like class A and I like class B. I've invested in some C-class properties as a passive investor, but those are not really what are drawing my eye right now. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Right now, as, as we talk, interest rates are you know still continuing to creep up and interest rates are so much higher. You talk about a property like the one I was just, the, the investment I was just talking about, the 2021 property, that's a fixed interest rate of 3.49%. That's good. You're not going to find that anywhere. And that was, an, that was a assumable bet. Yeah, okay. So I think another thing that's really exciting is finding properties that have assumable debt. Was that a developer that then... It, it was exited. It was. Is so, it stabilized? Like, is it leased it, out? It is. It's. Um. I believe it's like ninety five percent occupied. Oh, okay. And um. Actually, the developer was just focused on lease lease up and just trying to get it get his occupancy as high as possible. But his rents per unit were still 
much farther below market than where we think they can be. So we think we can immediately raise rents um, on that property by a significant margin without doing any CapEx. So that's amazing. It's really a win-win for everybody. And those are the type of investments that that I'm looking for. I feel like it's de-risked, you know, from a lot of different angles. Yeah. It seems like there's a sen- sentiment change a little bit on some of these deals that they're, it's less balls to the wall now. And it's a little more, okay, let's rein this in a little bit and <laughs> let's look at risk again and debt again and things like that. Well, dude, I think you're gonna have a really good 2023. It's gonna be exciting to see where you go with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I appreciate it. So looking out, not business related, just personal. What's the one challenge you've had me mindset wise or limiting belief wise, maybe that not to say you haven't gotten past it, but what's like the, what's the thing you've bumped into when it's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not talking $75,000 condos anymore. I'm talking 20, 40, $50 million buildings here. What do you have to wrap your mind around to, to feel comfortable doing that? You know, I think for the most part, it's just being really intentional about my time and being really intentional about what deals I get involved in. One thing that I've noticed about multifamily investing and just the multifamily community as a whole, there is a ton of stuff going on. There are a ton of conferences. There are a ton of masterminds. And there's a lot of great content out there. There's a lot of great coaches. There's a lot of great, you know, events. And I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways that I've come across recently is just be super intentional about if I'm going to do something, I want it to be well worth my time. I'm not trying to be a co-GP on a deal where I'm going to just, you know, have a very small role in it. And if I'm going to do something, I want to go all in. And so I guess for 2023, my goal is to be very selective over what I do. And when I find a deal that I believe in, I want to go all in and I want to, you know, raise as much capital for the deal as I possibly can and feel really passionate about it. And if that means I can only do two or three deals in 2023, so be it. I would rather do two or three deals where I just totally max out than then do several little deals that aren't even worth my time. So you're trying to be strategic and patient and just when you see what you want, you're going to wait, wait, but then when it it hits, you're going to take it. Basically, you're going to go. And, you know, and selective over who I work with as well, because, you know, there's so many opportunities. And at first, you know, when I first got into multifamily, I was just thinking anybody, I want to be a GP. Anybody that will take me into a deal, I want to be a GP. But now I'm starting to talk to more experienced syndicators that have been in the space for two, three, five years. And some of these deals are falling apart. Some of these deals have gone sideways. And some of these deals were on short-term bridge loans and interest rates have gone up and they can't afford to buy a rate cap or, you know, they're not going to sell them a rate cap at this point. And that scares me. So I think now's a good time to regroup and think real hard about it. And like I said, you know, I've also been putting aside some dry powder by, you know, liquidating my retirement account. I put myself in a position to take advantage of these opportunities because I think, I don't think it's just going to be 2023, but I think I think there's going to be a ton of opportunity this year and in 2024. And so I'm going to sit back and wait for the great deals to come through with really experienced operators that I know I can partner with and 
you know, have a sense of, of comfort knowing that they've been down this road before. They've experienced a lot of different things. Yeah, because that rising tide raises all boats. And you can be experienced over the last five, seven, eight, nine years, basically post-2012. But it doesn't always mean that you are actually going to do well when the, the tide goes out a little bit. And that's what I'm trying to get the most out of when I go to these conferences is figure out who actually has the systems and processes and knowledge in place to perform well at, on, on both sides of that tide, basically, as opposed to the ones that are just riding the waves. And I mean, I've had some conversations with people. This one guy, he's a smart guy and smart, smart syndicator, and they have you know 10, 10 projects and two of them, they're worried they're going to have to sell them because they can't get this thing refinanced. And they're they're right now trying to figure out how do we preserve the initial investment of the investors, basically. So we'll see how that that turns out. But that's what I try to get out of these conferences as well, is figure out who is the ones that aren't going to get hit by that and why, and then the, who are the ones that did get hit, maybe with the exuberance of the market. And you know, everyone kind of forgot about debt until interest rates went up. And then it's like, oh, yeah, we should have paid attention to that a little more. I'm doing the exact same thing. I have a lot of dry dry powder sitting and I I hate having it sitting there because I know that uh, inflation is burning it a little bit, but I feel like having it ready and available right now is probably the, the best thing to do. So if I can at least have it invested enough to keep up with inflation, I know I'm okay, basically. So that's it's funny how we're we're in a similar position. You're you're maybe six or nine months in front of me and a few more condos for sure. But uh, dude, it was awesome having you on here. How can people get a hold of you? Website, email, Facebook? Yeah, so my website is ironsequity.com. And I've got an email address set up. Um, it's info at ironsequity.com. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Hope you enjoy Mexico for the rest of the week. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.